open our minds to other possibilities and be better active listeners with people who have different views than our own. And the minute we do that, we are able to solve any challenge that's before us. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by AWS Energy. Before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show by leaving a review on iTunes so I can read it on the show and give you a little shout out. All right. Well, I'm sitting here this afternoon with Catherine Reheis Boyd, president of Western States Petroleum Association. How are you, Kathy? I'm doing great. Thank you, Paige. Good, good. So let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. That's a long story. Well, we have all the time in the world. (laughs) Well, I always like to kind of start with where I am in the family that I belong to. So I'm a middle child of six siblings. And I oh, wow. Yeah, I know, right? I have one brother and five sisters, and they <laughs> poor brother. He is, and luckily, he was the oldest, and so then we all came after. But it was helpful, is because it really showed me how important it is to use your skills to mediate and bring people together. Because probably the most diverse set of individuals are my siblings, and so. <laughs> It was a skill set that definitely helped me, and I'll refer to it later as we get into this page, to bring diverse groups together, whether they're my own members in the oil and gas business or whether they're diverse groups outside of, of our industry. It has really helped and served me well. So, And I'm married. I got married very late at 43 years old. I had never an intention to actually get married, but after about at least five proposals, he wore me down and I finally gave in. <laughs> because I got married late, I don't have any children, but I have 12 nieces and nephews from those wonderful siblings I referred to. And oh they my are gosh. between the ages of 20 and 32. So I have my own millennial focus group that I call <laughs> on often. And we have a place up in Lake Tahoe and I often bring just the nieces and nephews to Lake Tahoe, no parents allowed and have just a wonderful time with them. And I'm sort of the cool aunt, right? Because I have no kids. So that's been just wonderful. I'll refer to that a little bit more as we get into this. And then the other thing before I sort of get into the energy side has been my love of the outdoors. I am definitely a tomboy to the core. I grew up with my favorite thing for my birthday would be my dad taking me to the Army Depot surplus store. Oh, that's awesome. Picking out, you know, canteens and helmets and what have you. And instead of Barbie dolls, I had G.I. Joe dolls and I still have my G.I. Joe. And it's important because it kind of got me into my college days and my career, which is actually on the environmental side. Very, very strong interest in the environment 
and preserving it. And so that's kind of where I come from and the basis of what I think I eventually brought to this industry. I certainly, before getting into the oil and gas industry, I did work for the Department of Fish and Game. I lived at the Salton Sea on a wildlife refuge and dealt with a lot of hunters and and preparing fields for waterfowl, driving a bunch of big equipment around. And I'm, I'm not that tall or big. So it was all <laughs> climb up on wheels that were about two times my size to even get up to, to drive the thing. And then I did a lot of work on Pyramid and Castake Lake, looking at fish surveys and what have you. And then also got also very involved with wardens going out at night and looking for those who were poaching and doing inappropriate behavior. So I have just this strong affinity to the outdoors, fish and game. I worked for Department of Forestry fighting fires at college. I was on the Cal Poly hotshot crew. So I went obviously to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for my career days and did a lot of work in natural resource management and environmental science, which is what my bachelor's is actually in. And uh-huh. so that's kind of how I, I moved a, you know, into the environmental space through college, got a scholarship out of high school. A lot of what I did in high school was relative to sports, ran track, played basketball, played softball. Me too. Did you? Oh, oh yeah. Volleyball, the whole bit. Yeah. Whole bit. Everything, everything I could get my hands on. Played football with the boys. You know the competitive side where that comes from, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It definitely is embedded there. And although I was offered a track scholarship, I, I took an academic scholarship to Cal Poly instead. And so I had a great education there at Cal Poly. And the last year of, of, of college, I took an interesting course on environmental impact reports from a gentleman who worked for Grace Petroleum. Never in my wildest dreams did I envision working for the oil and gas industry. Yeah, from what it sounds like so far, absolutely not. <laughs> it just wasn't even on my radar. You know, I was more in, you know, fish and game, wildlife, you know, forestry. And it was an interesting course and I, I loved it. And it, get, it got into the analysis of energy and the environmental intersection, which I fell in love with. I aced the course and the guy from Grace Petroleum said, well, you got to come work for me. And I said, I'm not working for the oil industry. And he said, all right, well, how about if you work for an environmental consulting firm who works for us? And I said, oh, I'll probably be okay. Where are they located? They're in La Jolla. I said, oh, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all in. If it's in La Jolla, I don't care. I'm all in. So that's how I kind of went from a solid, just environmental to appreciating and understanding the environmental and energy interface, falling in love with that, finding this sort of connection through this professor into the consulting world and moving down to La Jolla and then traveling all over the United States with this firm, doing all kinds of environmental energy work, whether it was testing, you know, power plant cooling towers, or I lived offshore on a research vessel off of San Luis Obispo, where we would assimilate the release of a, it was called at that time, SF6 gas, and that would find its way on shore. We would have monitors on shore collecting this gas. And that was to put together a computer model on impacts of, say, offshore oil wells on local communities. So it just got me into this whole sort of problem solving analysis. How do you make this work? How do you use data and research to really explore difficult problems? How do you work with diverse people? 
And, and that's, I think, really what kept moving me on the energy environmental interface. And just fast forward from there, I worked on Vandenberg Air Force Base for a while for the Monterey uh, Naval Postgraduate School, continuing on, you know, doing stuff there. And, and that was, uh, I think, a good stepping stone, because what I learned about myself is that although I definitely enjoyed the the Vandenberg Air Force Base and especially the Officers Club, I, uh, <laughs> I learned that I didn't really like working just by myself. And I really liked working with a team. And there was an opening in Bakersfield, California with Getty Oil mm-hmm. to go do their environmental work. And so... As I drove to Bakersfield, though, I kept thinking, wow, I went from San Luis Obispo to La Jolla to Bakersfield. I don't know about this trajectory I'm on exactly. I fell in love with Bakersfield, actually. The people there and the community are just- I really like it there, too. I've been a couple of times. I love it. It's just such a great place. It's always like a reunion going home when I go there. And so many people don't know, but Bakersfield in Kern County is the largest oil producing entity in the state and is actually sixth in the United States. So it's a big oil producing entity. But I worked there with Getty Oil, Texaco bought Getty, so I worked with Texaco. And then as a result of that, there was a trade association called the Western States Petroleum Association. At the time, it was called WOGA, the Western Oil and Gas Association. Uh And I was just, you know, a Texaco representative of this association. And they decided that they needed somebody to form the organization in Bakersfield for what we call the production side of the business, as you know, because you're familiar, getting oil out of the ground and basically doing something productive with it. And so as a result of that experience, I had to find two companies to sponsor me to even be interviewed. There was 11 people who were interviewed and I was chosen to form the office in Bakersfield for the, for the Western Oil and Gas Association at the time. So that's how I transitioned sort of from the career to these jobs to actually working for WISPA, WOGA now WISPA. And this is my 30th year. At, wow. At the organization, which is it's kind of unheard of, actually. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was a great path. It it was when I took the job in Bakersfield for some reason, and it was the lowest position within the organization called a coordinator at the time. I just knew for some reason I knew I was going to be president of this organization. And I had no idea it would take me 20 years to do it. <laughs> I had no, I was appalled that it took me 20 years, but it did. And I was persistent and I was dedicated. And in 2010, I took over as president and now have been president since then. That's awesome. That's a great story. So I, I bet you know Sherry Hornbunk. Sherry Hornbunk? It sounds familiar. She's with Taft College. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Exactly. Over in Taft. Okay. Yeah, I know her. Yeah. I've actually, I've had her on the show. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. She's real wonderful. So that's, and that's why I've been out there is because she had a colleague of mine speak at a conference and she's just wonderful. And I got to see everything. I mean, just, you know, operations for as far as the eye can see. Wow. That's great. I love talking to someone who loves Bakersfield and knows Taft. I know. Yeah. It's way out there though. (laughs) Great page. Yeah. So, so it took you 20 years to get to president, what are some of those issues and challenges that you face? I mean, and also being a woman in the in the industry during that time. 
Yeah. I mean, as you can imagine, being a female in a, a very predominantly male industry, and although it's getting better, it, it, it still is, you know, but we've we've made a lot of progress there. But I would say that my background in always dealing more with men coming from sort of that tomboy atmosphere, yeah. it was not unusual for me to find myself in a group of males. Yeah, I totally identify with that. Yeah, I mean, I was fighting fires, jumping out of helicopters, you know, living in fire camp, you know, I mean, all this stuff was all <laughs> male dominant. <laughs> so I think that's why a lot of times when when I and I started a group in WISPA called Wowie Women of WISPA initiative so that I also can help grow and grow women in the opportunities in their career path. By the way, we have 60% women in WISPA, over 60% women in WISPA, which is also for an oil and gas trade association. Pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. I just promoted two women into leadership positions uh, last week. So, very Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, very proud of that. But, you know, the challenges were more from people telling you that you couldn't do it because you possibly couldn't be smart enough because you've never run a refinery or you've never been on an oil derrick. And so there was always this feeling of having to prove them wrong. And being a type A personality, kind of a driver on steroids, you know, I, <laughs> I just, I could never like buy into that, right? It was, it was always never letting somebody define who I am and just this desire to prove them wrong. Right. The desire to to, you know, do everything I could to just, you know, take the hill, show them what I could do, prove that I could do everything they said I couldn't. So that's always been inherent in me. And it goes to, you know, sort of how I approach even the outdoors when we had a group who would hike to the tops of 14000 foot peaks. And regardless of what it took to get up that peak, no, regardless of how I felt, regardless of if my toes were bleeding or my legs were cramping, there is never a 14,000 foot peak I couldn't get to the top of, even if I was going up there having altitude sickness and wondering what the hell I was doing up there by myself. So it's just always been this drive, right? To get to the top, to show what I could do. And that I think was the persistence and the determination and the passion is what what I would say were really the things that allowed me to get through those challenges when barriers were continually put up in front of me over a very extended period of time. So basically, you were a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. I kind of, <laughs> yeah that's a good way to say it. I never thought of it that way, but yeah. It's only because I've been told that most of my life. <laughs> They're a lot in common. <laughs> I think it's also, Paige, and you probably experienced this, is also knowing when you had to back off a little bit. Oh, that's actually harder to do. It's going, oh, wait, hang on, hang on. Whoa, slow down, slow your roll. Yeah, slow your roll. And I remember when I was in competition for the president's position, and I had gone through an extensive interview process and of all of the candidates nationwide, I was actually selected by the selection committee. And so everything was going well until somebody brought in a new candidate who did not go through the selection committee and who they appointed to the position. Why did they do that? Male, worked, uh. worked in a refinery, had all the experience that supposedly I did not have. But the conversation, and, and this is where I think, you know, learning to back off is important. 
the conversation where I had to drive to San Francisco, meet with the company who was the board chair at the time, and have him explain this to me, and in the same breath said, but you cannot leave because we want this gentleman to groom you for the next five years to take over. And I said, you do know I've been acting president for five years. (laughs) (laughs) What other grooming? Groom you. I need, exactly. Goodness. And I said, I will think about what I think about all of this. And when I met the gentleman who was going to, obviously was appointed the president, and we met and he we had a conversation and I said, well, how long are you going to stay? And he said, five years. And I said, if I'm going to do this, we're going to come out as a leadership team. We're going to work together as a team. And that's the only way I'll do it. And there's a definite period of time that you will be here. And so it, it kind of went through that process of, and it ended up, we did really well together. He was a great guy. We're very good personal friends. And so and he did treat it that way. We were a leadership team and it was it was great. It was a great five years. But the challenge of it, I think, Paige, was when he decided he wanted to stay more than five years. And you're like, nope, uh, let me check my watch. It's time to go, buddy. Yeah. So that ended up, you know, me just looking for other opportunities, which I was offered two from from other companies. And and then just saying basically to our board, it's up to you. You can, you know, advance me to the position or, you know, I'm just going to, it's time for me to move on. Right. And they decided that I was the future and he was the past and they offered me the position and then the rest is history. That's so awesome. And, you know, I knew I had to, you know, I had to be firm on that play and, and I was ready to. Five years prior, I don't think I would have been ready to. But after that five years, I was like, no, I'm done. I'm ready. I know what I'm doing. I got this. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely yeah. understand so that. I, those were some of those traits. And, you know, I think throughout that, and I've I've carried this with me, Paige, I'm sure you have those things that you always reflect back on. And the one that I carry the most with me and people, because I do tend to be a workaholic, I am very, <laughs> and, and people say, well, why, why do you do what you do? And I literally say, because it doesn't occur to me not to. Interesting. And that is the single most thing that I think has been my success because I don't look at work as a job. Work and life are one thing. I'm happy in both and they are both sort of one. And it's not that I don't have work-life balance, although my husband might debate you on that. But (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I really, I mean, it's just who I am. It's in my DNA. It does not occur to me not to do what I do. And, you know, I know that after a time when that happens, it's a virtue. It becomes, it just becomes a virtue of, of who you are and how you show up. And, and I carry that with me often. And I shared it with my sister the other day because she was, she was reflecting how she got her first job at Lowe's and how it's really lifted her spirits. And I said, well, you've got a tremendous work ethic and she goes, yeah, I know. Where does that come from? And I said, it because it doesn't occur to you not to. It's just who you are. And he also said, that is like a very impactful statement. And she goes, yeah, you're right. It doesn't occur to me not to work hard, to be a good, you know, approach the customers appropriately, be responsive. You know, and I said, yeah, once you have that, you're unstoppable. You really are. So 
that's just one thing I think, Paige, I wanted to share with you that when I do talk to women's groups and young women in particular, that I like sharing with them because, you know, we all have it in there, right? It's, it, it, you know, if, if you know, many of us just have it inherently. And so you can learn it, but if you have it, it's, it's pretty impactful. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. So now that we've established your start, let's talk about what Western States Petroleum Association is about. Sure. And, and we've, we've evolved and luckily I've been a part of that evolution. And I think really it even started when we changed our name from WOGA to WISPA. Literally, I remember being in an establishment with a group of, of firefighters and they were like, well, we like WOGA, the Western Oil and Gas. We don't like this WISPA. What is a WISPA? <laughs> it was hilarious. And I said, well, guys, we are, we are the kinder, gentler version of the oil industry who likes to collaborate and, and work with people to find win-win solutions. And they're like, no, we like WOGA. <laughs> <laughs> and what it is, it's oil and gas and they're men and they don't like change. Yes, That's exactly. what that is. Very good. <laughs> but we are a trade association that represents the oil and gas industry in five states. And so we cover Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, and Nevada. And our job is to really, frankly, make sure that we work with, you know, governors, legislators, regulators, and communities so that we've got policies and conversations that really cover both the environment, the economy, and, you know, just social issues in a, in a balanced way. And we are the conveners of that conversation. My job as president is to be the voice of the industry in that regard. And I think one thing that is really important to me is to make sure that as we talk about our industry, that people understand who we are. Because frankly, what's out there and the push is to paint this industry as evil. Well, especially on your side of the country. Oh my goodness. And it's it's constant. And What's fun for me is to get out there and tell people what we're really about. And of course, it's it's not that, right? And it really gets into also the issue of the future and what, I, you know, obviously the sustainable energy future that many people talk about. But we absolutely believe that the hardest challenge we have is our own mindset and that we need to think about things intentionally and not accidentally. We need to bring diverse people together to have the right conversation so that we can balance what we call, and I call the four E's. We can balance the environment, the economy, I'll call it social equity, and then the right energy mix to make sure we can we can provide accessible, reliable, affordable fuel to everyone, anywhere, all the time, as I say. And that's not an easy task. That's a heavy lift. But what's exciting for me is to see how our industry has evolved into everything. I mean, I, I have obviously, all my members are traditional oil and gas, and that will be with us for a long, long time. And, you know, luckily so, as far as I'm concerned. But that being said, they're also the most creative, innovative people I have ever met and had the pleasure of representing. And I often talk about the initiative. I, I launched an initiative this year called the Innovations Initiative because I love talking about everything that they're doing 
in the entire energy space. And I don't care if it's wind, if it's solar, if it's biofuels, if it's alternative fuels, if it's carbon capture sequestration on how the heck we're going to deal with climate change emissions. They are in all of it everywhere. And they are so talented, so smart. They have the technology to move us towards a more sustainable energy future. And so it's just such an honor to be part of that. That story is not told out there, certainly not by the media. Oh, no. We have to get out there to tell it. I say we have a good story to tell. We just don't tell it, you know, <laughs> which is a problem. And so, well, and, then, and that's why we're attacked so often is because nobody's saying anything. Nobody's standing up for it. And, uh, you know, you see all these commercials by, you know, Exxon or API or, or Shell or Marathon or whomever. And it's, it's, it's going, oh, yeah, prosperity. But it doesn't explain everything. And it's, it's just, you know, why, what are you paying for? Yeah, exactly. And so when, when I'm out there talking to folks, I really do believe in a very inclusive dialogue. You know, I really do believe that the only way we're going to get to a sustainable energy future is if everybody has a seat at the table. And, you know, we have to have a conversation. And I also say, you know, the communities, frankly, and you know this, and certainly in the West, the communities own our, our license to operate, our social license to operate is really not owned by the government and the agencies. It's, it's owned by the communities where we find ourselves operating. And so we have had to open our minds and become much better active listeners as to what the concerns of communities are. And when I'm out talking to them about understanding their concerns, we're not doing it like we used to traditionally do it, going in and saying, well, we're the oil and gas industry, you should care what we think, and you should want to do what we recommend. We go into it saying, no, what do you care about? And how do we as an industry align with your needs? Because if we don't do that, we have no social license to operate. Right. So it's For me, it's a great way to kind of assert common ground with, with individuals and communities and really ask some, what we call some, you know, some questions that get that conversation going. Like, you know, why does this topic matter to us? You know, what are the things we're trying to accomplish? What are the values we're trying to uphold? What is the future we're trying to build? And what is the difference of opinion that we seem to have? And when you, when you can start the conversation in that way, it is just amazing to me how you can find common ground and move the conversation forward. We have an annual conference every year. Unfortunately, this year we're going to be doing it Zoom, but <laughs> you know, or some other some other platform, maybe a podcast a platform. <laughs> but I'm becoming, you know, so skilled at this, right? <laughs> the annual conference that we had last year, I literally hosted a dinner party on stage. So it was a it was a dinner table and I invited people to the table because the theme was everybody deserves a seat at the table. And it is only through that inclusivity that we are going to be able to plan a sustainable energy future. And so it was a fascinating conversation. I had community groups, I had environmental groups, I had environmental justice groups, I had scientists, agencies, a small business person. And we just had a great time in this dinner conversation. So it was That's so clever. It was really cool. And then at the end, I said, okay, if you could invite any person living or non-living 
to your dinner table, who would it be? And that also was really illuminating on, you know, who picked, what, what person did you pick? And, you know, I struggled because it was either going to be Thomas Jefferson or the Dalai Lama for me. And <laughs> I ended up with the Dalai Lama. But others, you know, it was all over the board. I mean, it was some were Mother Teresa, some were, you know, Ab- Abraham Lincoln. I mean, and then some were political figures, current political figures. So it was really fascinating. But that is really what I've begun to understand is that no one has the corner on wisdom. I certainly don't. And I got out and did what I called a, a thought leadership tour over the past two years, where we picked sort of non-traditional groups. One was Green Biz up in San Francisco, groups that were skeptical of us, you know, might talk to us, might not, and really reach out to them and have this kind of a, a conversation. And I'll never forget when I called Green Biz over in San Francisco to go over there. And it's, it's like, I'd like to come over and talk to you. And they're like, why? <laughs> like, why do you want to talk to us? We don't talk to you. And I said, well, I think we actually have more things in common than you think. And so they they asked me to come over. We had a great conversation. We had such a good conversation that the head of Green Biz said, well, I want you to come back and I want you to spend four hours in a focus group with all my millennial staff. And they can ask wow. anything you they want. And because they don't believe you're authentic. I said, okay, I'm in. And we did and had a great conversation. It was four hours and they did grow me. And by the end of it, they said, okay, we think you are authentic. We actually believe what you're saying, which is a surprise to us, frankly. But now we want to know what you're going to do about it. Because words are one thing. We've seen it before, Kath. And now how are you going to put actions towards? But those kinds of conversations, Paige, are what's going to move this industry forward. And we know that our, we say our people, our planet, our prosperity and our progress depends on it because we absolutely believe that to be true. So I don't know if that shares a little bit. I mean, we, as an, as a trade association, I am often bringing together diverse groups to solve complex problems. I'm often trying to take proposed regulation or legislation and work with people to try to express why we might have concerns and what what one can do about them, why we're trying to meet their goals. We as an association did not oppose California's most aggressive climate change program, their cap and trade program. We actually supported it going forward with aggressive goals but we had issues on economics that we wanted embedded in there so that consumers had some protections about the increasing cost of energy because California has the highest electricity and fuel cost. Why does it? Yeah. But, but that, that's how we approach things. And that's, that's why I love the position I have because it is that intersection of energy and the environment from which I started. It's never changed. I've never got away from it. I've never, it's been just so core for my entire 30-year career. And I really think it has advanced WISPA forward as to be a positive force in the conversation in the states we operate. And, and I know that because I hear it played back to me from not only regulators, but from these community members who we've established a relationship with that we'd never dreamed possible. Right. And that's what keeps me going. That's what really keeps me going. The drive. Well, it sounds like Wispa's in great hands. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I hope so. They keep me around, Paige, so it must be for a reason. 
<laughs> I mean, I keep waiting for him to tell me, you know, isn't 30 years long enough, Kath? But <laughs> <laughs> So if you had a piece of advice to give our industry, Kathy, what would it be? I would say, I really would say it's to open our minds to other possibilities and be better active listeners with people who have different views than our own. And the minute we do that, we are able to solve any challenge that's before us. It's very true. I mean, carbon neutrality is, whether you talk, talk about, you know, su- you know, sustainability of the energy future, or you talk things like carbon neutrality, and California just launched the most aggressive targets to be carbon neutral by 2045. 45, goodness. Which is pretty aggressive. Yeah. Carbon neutral. And, and so when we step back and look at that, that could be a challenge or an opportunity. And if we turn it into an opportunity, we start beginning to understand, can you imagine producing oil in a carbon negative way? Because the answer is, yeah, you can. And it's through carbon capture sequestration. And so what a conversation to have. You can start to produce oil in a carbon negative way which totally advances CARB's or the California Resources Board's interest and the governor's interest in carbon neutrality goals, in reducing climate change emissions, in all of those things that California prides itself in. And so that's a change of mindset. And, And so I know this industry will figure out the answers to any challenges we have because they're that good. They're just that good. And so that's that's pretty exciting. I mean, and it's exciting to communities when they hear that. And, you know, the other thing that I, I really appreciate is the jobs that we provide and the quality of life we provide to so many individuals, whether they're out of high school without, you know, without a college degree or whether they're full-time, you know, PhDs and everything in between. No matter there, you know, we're very strong on diversity and inclusion. And we're also probably one of the last industries left that has such an amazing salary that we can, you know, that we can offer to so many wide range of different career paths. We've got programs where we're giving, you know, a second chance to those that have had an unfortunate experience and and found themselves in the prison system and allowing them to come out and become part of our industry and, you know, provide them the, the, you know, the self-worth and the self-esteem to become viable place in society. And so many stories there of what we've been able to provide and do just the upward mobility for disadvantaged communities that we can provide There's just so much there for us to take pride in this industry. And the most disappointing thing is to hear how we're characterized. That's the thing that keeps me up at night that is just like, man, that is just not who we are. I mean, and so I want to get out there and, you know, shout it from the highest mountain to as many people who are listening (laughs) to me and find all those who will shout it with me because there's so much pride in this industry and we will be the ones that move us forward. I mean, if not us, then who? Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of takes me back to how, how's, how's everybody in your organization doing 
during this COVID. Yeah. And as you can imagine, it's issue. been a tough time for the industry. Not only did where we hit, it was like the perfect storm, right? We were hit not only with what we call demand destruction, people not driving or flying, right? right. So not using gasoline, diesel, or jet fuel, which is what we make our natural, you know, to some extent, natural gas. Very little consumption. Yeah, very little consumption. And then at the same time, the downslide in the, the price of crude oil and so, as I said to many of the media that I did, a lot, I had a lot of Zoom media calls during that couple of weeks where this was happening. And it was like, well, they're like, well, how are you doing? Well, when you can't produce it, refine it or sell it, it's not a good day for us. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going really well right now. And so, you know, and then we get into the issues, but so we have weathered the storm, our industry, again, resilient as we are. I was able to quickly put in place work at home orders for our own staff and was able to make sure everybody could work effectively at home remotely. So we had all of those things in place where we can you know, make sure people could work remotely and be safe and well. And then when we did go back to work for a couple of weeks, we did it in a way where we had very strict protocols for and staging of employees and, you know, half coming in a half, half the week and the other, the other half and, you know, temperatures at the door, logging in, you know, sanitizers, safe distancing, all those things were in place. And then in Sacramento in particular, in, in other areas of the state where our offices are, it kicked up again. And so we pulled back and everyone is now working remotely again. But we have not lost any employees. We have been able to keep people paid. Our members are, you know, of course, dealing with the issues themselves and their companies, but they are providing full support to the association, which has been, again, amazing and a testament to, I think, the value. What a blessing. Yeah. We provide to them. And and I'm just so, I just so blessed that, that we're in that position and feel so bad for people that aren't. I can't, I just can't even imagine what that must be like. I mean, I just think about it all the time. If you're well, it's not fun by any means. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I've been there twice. Oh, you, you, yeah. You know, yeah, it's hard. It's rough. And, and just, I guess I, my heart's even bigger right now because it's just a different, a completely different situation than what I was in there. You know, there was opportunity. It was just about, you know, getting in the door and talking to somebody. And right now it's just, everybody's on lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we're doing good. I, I was not a big Zoom fan when we started this. And <laughs> now I am the biggest Zoom fan team, Microsoft team fan there is. So <laughs> it's actually been interesting. And, and for the media page, what I found very interesting is we've had much more thoughtful conversations because they're not looking for a quick soundbite you know, and I don't have any time, you know, give me a soundbite. We're, we're on, we're on deadline. It has been this conversation over zoom where, where not only do we, we talk, they don't want to stop talking. They want, they have all kinds of questions and they say, well, would you mind if we just stay on and ask you questions? I go, yeah, let's do it. And they just have so much curiosity that we, I never one knew. And we never had the opportunity to really just have this dialogue you know, and I'm sitting at home and they're in their living room. I mean, it's just a whole different experience. And you think it's because they don't have anywhere to be? I think it's that plus the fact that they're seeing us as real people. Like, you know, I've been in this industry. I'm a female. I've come up. They've been interested in that. They're wondering, well, how do you approach these things? Well, what do you think about sustainability? You guys are against that, right? Well, of course not. And then we get into that conversation, you know, 
well, you know, how do you balance the environment and the economy? And, you know, they start asking things that have always been on their mind that they just really didn't either have the opportunity or the time to think about. Or maybe even the distraction of everything else going on around. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Maybe the distraction. That's a that's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's had a chance to slow down. Yeah, everyone has had a chance to slow down, which, you know, I don't know about you, but I keep wondering, how can you work more hours than you were? <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have to you don't have to put on makeup. You don't have to get dressed. Well, only half dressed, really. You know, you don't have to drive anywhere. Yeah. The whole day yeah. Goes by and you're like, did the day just go by? Was that just like nine hours? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I, I remember whenever I used to have to commute from north of Houston to downtown Houston, that would take anywhere from an hour to to two hours. Depends on was there a car accident, you know. What happened today? Traffic. Is there a baseball game? Is there, you know, you know, many factors. So I, I think it's it's kind of slowed everybody down to give them that thoughtfulness. Yeah, I think you're right. I really do. And you know, and us too, right? I mean, we're able to, you know, whether or not it's the pandemic or there's the climate crisis or it's divisive politics or it's it's all those things that we find ourselves in in every day we're just learning much more on how we're relying on each other, right? And how we're working together on solutions in ways that surprised me. They su- It surprised me through this process. And I kind of, am, I mean, I've just been this morning on, on so many Zoom calls with people that I wouldn't normally, or it would take so long to schedule, like, you know, get on their calendars or drive down there or fly down there and meet with them. And and now it just seems so easy to get a group of people on the Zoom and 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 talk. Yeah. 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 There is some good that has come out of all this. <laughs> Maybe they just don't want to talk to who they're quarantined with. Well, I'd rather talk to Kathy than I would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That could be true. That could be true. Yeah. So what book influenced you the most and why? Probably my favorite book, Atlas Shrugged. Who is John Galt? It's a long book. <laughs> I've never read this book. It has got to be the longest book ever by Ayn Rand, who, by the way, wrote it on the year I was born, 1957. And she just got it right. I mean, just the whole work ethic in that book, you know, is just so core to who I am. I just loved it. And I have actually a leather copy a paperback, a hardback. Ooh, leather. <laughs> I have a leather copy and I've read it. I think I've read it nine times. Wow. Because I like it so much. And so that's been my favorite book of all time. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right. What's your most used business tool besides Zoom? <laughs> oh, God. iPhone. Yeah iPhone. I am a iPhone and a text and a, and a, I use my iPhone now more than I use anything, including my surface laptop or my, or my desktop. If I didn't have this iPhone, I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> so see, see, I'm more partial to my iPad. You are. Yeah. I just, I can I see easier. I don't have an iPad. I use it as a laptop. Ah, probably for us, we have to have, because of our IT security, Ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. That's probably why. So we have to use a Microsoft base. So we have a Surface, but I really, I have the largest iPhone I can buy. So it, it's actually like a mini, it's like a mini iPad. There you go. 
<laughs> well, we all have to see, right? Yeah, we all have to see. So I think that's probably my my best tool. But then I'll give you my other best tool, picking up the phone. There is no better thing to do than talk to people. And I emphasize this with my staff all the time. Well, did you talk to them? Well, I sent them an email. An email is not talking to them. <laughs> Okay. But it's, it is a hard thing to instill in, in some of our younger employees. It, you know, how valuable it is to have a conversation. It's like a lost art. Well, I mean, that's, that's how the industry used to work. You had to pick up the phone. Yes. Yes. And I, I'm a, I wish we get back to that a little more than we are. And I think, you know, even, you know, the zoom is helping because you are having a conversation and you're actually seeing each other. So you know, it, it's in a way kind of picking up the phone. Yeah, yeah. You're still getting audio. So yeah. <laughs> well, at least when our system works, right? <laughs> when we right, through, exactly, yeah. exactly. I yeah, I only had to reboot this twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I do really think we're, we are at a tipping point in how we think about energy and how we converse about it, how we, you know, I was able to go to Madrid to COP25 last year. Oh, wow. Which was, you know, one for for my industry. It was the first time a trade, an oil and gas trade association even went, and and I was on oh, probably four different panels on our industry and how we approach things, and and it was just amazing to me. There was not, other than a few protests, there was not huge bashing of the oil and gas industry. There was much more inclusivity on, on how are we going to work together to figure this out because climate change is, is the issue of our time and we all have to play an active part in how we're going to solve it. So it was much more collaborative than I had envisioned. And I, I, I left feeling, I really left feeling much more empowered than I thought I would. I was thinking I was going to have to be defending, you know, going defending the industry. And it wasn't like that at all, you know, other than, of course, you know, like I said, there were some of the the protests and those sorts of things. But the conversations inside were really productive, really productive. And so that's why I think how we how we approach the future intentionally and not accidentally, how we talk with each other, not over each other, which we're really good at talking over each other, but how we talk with each other is really is going to be what moves us towards sustainability in the future. And we're going to be part of every step of that. And that's, I think, exciting to people who don't know the industry. And it, and it also wants them to know more. They want to know more when you get into that conversation with them. Which is all, always hopeful. Yeah, always hopeful. Well said. Yeah. So I don't know if this is necessarily applicable, but I always ask it because people come up with the most interesting answers. But who is your most respected competitor? Competitor. That's a good one. Well, I mean, you're into competition. I would say probably... I respect the environmental justice community because of their passion around their goal of protecting communities' public health. And it is their priority goal above all others. And that being said, when you can strike a partnership with them, you can have an active role in achieving their goal and as a result of that, they move towards understanding that the economy actually matters for them to be successful. Because, you know, I, I, I've often told them, you know, I have been, you know, doing this for actually about 38 years to be precise. And the environment and the economy go hand in glove and always have. 
And when you have them both, you will have the most environmental improvement there is. You cannot have environmental improvement if the economy is not strong. That's true. And so once they get that appreciation, they're like, oh, you can help me in my mission. Then you do become a partner and not an adversary. And that's where I try to move all the conversations. The minute we become partners and not adversaries, we can make a difference in so many, so many ways. Yeah. It makes complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's a program in California called AB 617. And it's a program that was passed a couple of years ago by the legislature and signed by the governor. I was going to say that sounds like a bill. It is a bill. Good. Good job. And <laughs> it's, But its purpose was interesting. The local communities, although they appreciate and are concerned about climate change, they were much more concerned about emissions and impacts in their backyard. And so they were kind of tired of hearing about all this talk about climate change. It's a global pollutant. It's, you know, it's not things that impact your health. It's things that impact things in the environment that cause other things to happen, but it's not a direct public health issue. You know, you're not breathing something in. It's CO2, obviously. We breathe it in and out every day. But once they 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 really said, you know, we want something in our backyard, and 617 was passed to do that. And it's a community-driven process. Never have the communities in California been in charge of their own process. And they, as the business entity, we were asked to come in and work with the communities in dealing with local public health issues, including using science to help us solve the problem. Whoa, science? Yeah, a science fact. (laughs) Because what we, we agreed on foundationally going in is if we can determine where the source of the problem is, we can fix the problem. If we're just going to have a buckshot approach, we'll just like, you know, cause everybody to do everything everywhere, be very costly, and we might completely miss the mark. Why don't we actually yeah. find out? Because if it's us as the only gas industry, I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to step up and do our part. Oh, absolutely. But we should know, and we need you to join us in that. And it's it's not inexpensive. I mean, each of these monitors, which have to be, you know, approved by the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, there can be 2 million bucks a pop for one of these babies. And we've got 400 communities in California. So, but I love this program because never in my wildest dreams did it advance a conversation between business and communities in a productive way that I've seen this program do. And I mean, it forced us to the table to work with each other, to understand each other, And we have come so far in two years. We started with my friends in the environmental justice community saying, we don't care about jobs. We don't want to talk about them. We don't, you know, all we care about is public health and safety. And we would say, well, we understand the public health and safety, but the economy matters. And now literally at the same table, the same individuals say, well, we don't want anyone to lose their job. Jobs are important. There you go. Had a conversation. So that's just an example of one of those programs that I said, it's just the gift that keeps giving for all of us. So I always applaud the governor and the legislature for doing that. I tell them, you better keep that program funded because that's the way we should be doing business everywhere we operate. That's great. What's your most important lesson learned? I would say it's it's a mantra that I put on my desk and I carry it with me everywhere because I think about it in everything I do. And that is, and you may have heard it, it's certainly not mine. I can't even remember who the hell wrote it, but 
It's watch your thoughts because they become words. Watch your words because they become actions. Watch your actions because they become habits. Watch your habits because they become character. And watch your character because it becomes your destiny. Ooh, yeah, I like that. That's a lot to wrap your head around. It's a lot to wrap your head around. But I tell you what, if you keep that in mind in all you do, it really changes your approach, really changes your approach. So that's my biggest lesson. And that's why I, I carry it with me that in, you know, why do you do what you do? Because it doesn't occur to you not to. Those are the two. Those are the two. Very good. Kathy, why is your role now important to the future of the oil and gas industry? I think because of what it signifies, not only for the issue of diversity, especially being a female in a male dominant world that was able to, you know, really come up from the bottom in an organization to lead it. So I think that definitely is one. And then the second I would say is how I approach issues as a way to indicate an evolution of our industry's thinking. That we now understand how important communities are in the conversation. We understand that we've got to come together to create a truly sustainable energy future, that we've got to be open and active listeners and partners in that conversation, that we've got to not talk over each other, but talk with each other and, you know, adjust our mindsets towards, I would call, you know, inclusive innovation and that we as an industry are committed to do more, right? We're committed to do everything we need to, to move society forward in a sustainable way and to continue to improve the quality of lives of communities and frankly, the world. And my approach to that and the openness I have towards it authentically, because I truly generally believe that to be true, they are not just words, I think signifies an industry that has gone through its own evolution and transition and believes in that as well. And I think that is what's going to cause us to come together even more and figure out where we need to go. And that, I think, my role in this position is important as a catalyst and an indication of where this industry has been is now and will go. Very good. Very good. You have a favorite podcast? Right now it's this one because it's the only (laughs) (laughs) No, there is one I have. There is one other. I thought about this. I said, guy, I must have been listening to one podcast. And it is one that I just started listening to. His name is Jared Blumenfeld. He is the Cali PA secretary in California. So he runs a very prominent part of the governor's staff on all air quality and public health issues for the state of California. And he is fascinating. And one of, he's one of the guys that make me smile every time I either interact with him or listen to his podcast. He's just, he's definitely a Brit, has a heavy accent 
And I just love how he engages people and how much fun. I'm always smiling when I get off his podcast. I'm just like <laughs> smiling and motivated. And it's always it's something, some interesting topic of the day, right? It's a very prominent topic. But I don't do many, so I don't have a lot to pull from. So it's that one and this one are my only two so far. <laughs> That's awesome. I appreciate that. I feel special. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kathy, this has been wonderful. Thank you for joining me again today. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about WISPA, how can they go about doing that? Well, I'll give you two things. First of all, obvious one is my email, Kathy at WISPA.org. But more importantly... My cell phone is available all the time, and that's 916-835-0450. Okay. I'm also going to add your LinkedIn to our show notes and the website, of course, so everybody has access to that. And that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Now here's events on deck. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. But we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.